hear the word of God. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Amen. Let me open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, bless this your word to us. This, uh, perhaps most famous of all passages in scripture, help us to grow in our understanding of your good news, your gospel, and indeed how it changes everything. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So John chapter 3, I want to draw three things out of this passage. First, Jesus isn't, <laughs> yes, I always draw three things. That's the last thing. Jesus, Jesus sees, Jesus isn't impressed by Nicodemus. That's first. Jesus isn't impressed by Nicodemus. Second, Jesus knows what's wrong with Nicodemus. And third, Jesus has an answer. All right, so let's go back. Number one, Jesus isn't impressed with Nicodemus. Who is Nicodemus? This bears conversation. Nicodemus is uh, like what every Princetonian would aspire to be. Right? And by that I mean he's a ruler of the Jews. And how he's on the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. Right? The assemblage of men who decided everything in, uh, for the Jewish people under the Roman Empire. Right? So, and how do you get on the Sanhedrin? Well, he got there by being one of the smartest people of the Jews one of the most knowledgeable, one of the most learned, right? He is, a, by being a ruler of the Jews, a requirement was that he be a deeply, deeply knowledgeable of scripture, right? This is like the ultimate nerd fantasy. If I'm smart and educated enough, they'll give me power, right? <laughs> and that's how it was. It was a theocracy, right? It's like Nicodemus was brilliant. He was the best educated. And so he got to decide things, not who got executed. That's what the Romans held back for themselves. But everything after who gets to die, right? Everything after that, the Sanhedrin was uh, uh, deciding over. And so here, Nicodemus, he's part of the also of the he's described as the Pharisees. So there were different factions, right, in Jewish society and on the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees they dominated the Sanhedrin, but the Pharisees they who they were the strictest of the strict, right? So if like you're a perfectionist, again, who would a Princetonian aspire to be? Not just the smartest, but the perfectionist smart. 
the most rigorous in their application, in this case, in their application of the law of God, their understanding of the Torah, and their rigorous adherence to what they understood the Torah to be requiring of them. So that's who Nicodemus He's awesome. Like, the equivalent would be, like, you're, you're, you know, you're hanging around on campus, and, like, some, you know, senator shows up. Like, sitting senator just, like, walks in. How would you respond, right? You're just, you're just in preset. You show up in preset one day, and there's some senator there. Like, how would you respond? Would you be the same as you are every other day in preset? Like, sort of vaguely blank stare. <laughs> <laughs>
He doesn't have some massive framework of Christian civilization to know he's supposed to be born again. Uh, and this is what Jesus says to him. You need to be born again. Nicodemus gives the obvious question in response. Like, uh, how? Like a grown man himself. Like, how does that work? He's like doing the thought process to go back into your mother's room. You know, it's like there's just obstacles that just will not work. And so Jesus responds, right? You need to be born. So what do we mean by being born again? Here's the heart of the gospel. You need to be born, unless one is born there in verse 5, of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus comes back to him again with the same response, which is, how can these things be? How can these things be? Right here, Jesus takes issue with him, right? Are you the teacher of Israel? That was his role, Nicodemus, a teacher of Israel. Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? And so what, what is he saying here? Well, he, he, he's going back. So this, I mean, this is easy. We, of course, are more ignorant than Nicodemus about the Old Testament by light years. But Nicodemus should have known. What's Jesus referring to when he says we need to be born again? Anyone want to hazard a guess? Ah, oh, there, 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 there we go. Seminary PhD. Right? <laughs> Seminary PhD. Ezekiel 36. This is Ezekiel 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you, I uh, gave you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Right? This is why Jesus rebukes Nicodemus. Nicodemus should know. Nicodemus did not. I mean, how many of you have read Ezekiel? Don't raise your hands. I don't want to know. <laughs> but it's like even you know, for us, only like the most educated, right, would probably know off the top of their heads. This is the passage. But Nicodemus was that person. He was steeped in the scripture. And it's right here in Ezekiel. This messianic prophecy, this proclamation, I will send my spirit within you. I will take away your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. And what follows immediately after in Ezekiel 37? If you read one chapter in Ezekiel tonight, go read Ezekiel chapter 37. In Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel has this vision. He's taken to this valley full of dry bones. Right, drive on. I had this conversation with Christina, my wife, a couple years ago. She said to me, she's like, those are human bones. <laughs> she's taken to a valley full of dry bones. Dry bones are human bones, right? You didn't realize that. It's human bones. Ezekiel's looking at this, and God asks him, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, you, Lord, know. And God commands him to speak, and breath goes into them, and flesh and sinews comes around them, and the dry bones come back to life. Right? It's there in Ezekiel, the vision that God here, what is wrong with Nicodemus? And what is wrong with us is that we are dry bones. And I think even like Nicodemus coming to him at night, there's this symbolism. Nicodemus is in spiritual darkness when he comes to Jesus. He cannot see. And he needs to be born again spiritually. He is in, he is part of that valley of dry bones. And he needs a work of the Spirit, that breath, symbolizing the Spirit of God to come in and make him alive. 
make him alive. I was thinking on this back when I was a student on our winter retreat, Kevin on a winter retreat, because um, that's such a that that message about the gospel that we're that we need to be born again. Well, it doesn't sound like good news, but a story I always think of in that regard is when I was a student, one of my good friends uh, in PEF, she was a psychology major, and she was doing surveys for her senior thesis on college student well-being. I want to say it was, and so she was passing out surveys at the winter retreat. You're, you know, it's like you're there, it's like February, and you gotta like get your thesis in soon, and so this is like your one chance to trap a large number of people and get them to fill out your overlong survey, right? You know, it's like you'll you'll know how it is. Um, and so she was, we were all filling out the survey, and the theme of the retreat was on like sin, like how you know, apart from God, like we are lost in our sin, lost and dead in our sin. That was the theme of the retreat, or at least that had come up strongly. And one of her questions, because she was measuring well-being, like happiness, psychological well-being, by how people answered the question, how highly do you think of yourself? <laughs> like, how good are you? Right? Like, how much confidence you have, do you have in your own abilities? That was the question. And here's the world good Christians on the retreat where we just learned that me by myself, what can I do? Nothing but through God all my fucking things. So it's like zero, zero. <laughs> and she was horrified. She was horrified. She was like, these Christians, they're so depressed. You know, it's like they're just like wrecked, you know, like emotionally and psychologically. You know, they just have no sense of self-confidence. And, uh, you know, <laughs> she stuck. The psychology department was starting from a very different presupposition about what's wrong with the world from the Christian faith, from what Jesus thinks is wrong with the world when he's talking to me. Right? A fundamentally different presupposition. It was starting with the assumption that psychological well-being comes from thinking highly of yourself. Right? Comes from having confidence in yourself. And what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, because Nicodemus, he had all that stuff going for him. The man was a winner. I mean, top 70 in the people of Israel, right? Top 70, 70 people in Sanhedrin. Top 70 in Judea. That's how good he was. I don't know, he wasn't number one, so you know, there's always room for improvement, but he was top 70. He was as good as it gets. He was smart, he was talented, he was pious. He even comes down to us in scripture well. He shows up a couple of other places. And what Jesus is saying is, like, that's not what it's about. That's not what it's about. What you can do what skills you have, right? The trouble with us and with the world goes deeper than our self-confidence or achievements or our circumstances, whatever they are. We stand there in verse 17, condemned. Now, the, Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but he didn't need to. The world condemns itself. The world condemns itself. What's I doing this week? I'm spinning the Dred Scott decision, right? You ever read the Dred Scott decision before the Civil War, the Supreme Court? It was like to settle the issue of slavery. It's like depressing. The Supreme Court justice declared all descendants of slaves could never be citizens. That's what he declared. He hoped to settle the issue. Instead, there was a civil war, right? Well, I was reading, I was reading like this account of this Nazi doctor Scientists. His job was to create uh, gas trucks to gas um, on, uh, for the Holocaust, right, for Eastern Europe. And it's this clinical. I was reading through his reports. It's so clinical, doing his job. And then they sent him out 
because they were having trouble, like off in Minsk. And he sent to Minsk this German scientist, and then he realizes they're gassing women and children too. I don't know what was going through the man's mind, right? It's like when he was doing this. Like, I guess he had convinced himself in his mind that they were just killing, at, at, at most, just men, grown men at least, even if they were innocent. And so then the man couldn't handle it. Yet he went straight back. He'd been doing this big tour to get all his gas trucks working. And he went straight back to, to Germany because he couldn't handle it. And continued his work, of course. But, you know, continued it from a distance. Right? Blocked it out. It's like the world condemns itself. The world condemns itself. And speaking on a much more personal and intimate level, like just thinking in our own lives, the people around us, we condemn the people around us, and they condemn us. Our own hearts, it's, you can't escape it. I mean, Princeton is such proof of this reality, because you think if anyone would be happy, if life circumstances created happiness for us all, we would all be joyful, right? Nothing would ever trouble us. We have everything, the world at our feet. And yet, I, I have been depressed. The eyes of history of depression, I know many of you do too, I've walked through it with no end of people. It's more common here at Princeton than it is in the general population. Because if you're measuring your well-being, psychology department style, by how good am I, and you're comparing yourself to the other people in this room or the other people in your classes or the people who live down the hall, like, where will you be? It's not even about that. Your personal happiness and your personal well-being, it goes deeper, what Jesus is saying is here we are lost in our sin. We've rebelled against God. God has created us to be righteous, to love one another. And what do we do? We wage wars, we're selfish, we bicker. Jesus meant good news, right? Good news. Jesus knows what's wrong with Nicodemus. Well, third, last, Jesus has an answer. Jesus has the answer. Here's the one answer you need in all Sunday school classes, right? all your life growing up. Jesus has an answer. Jesus has the answer. And what is the answer? The answer Jesus gives Nicodemus, there in John 3, 16, is not, here are a set of principles, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, okay, here's what you got right in your understanding of the law, the Old Testament law, here's what you got wrong, and I'm going to adjust it a little bit, like a rabbi, and then you'll be good. You'll be on the right path. You'll be out of the darkness and you'll be into the light. You'll be born again. You'll be from the valley of dry bones to having a new, new sinews, new breath of life in you. No, the answer he gives is God gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I mean, the answer he, Jesus gives is an action taken in history by himself. On the cross, after his three-year earthly ministry, on the cross, to bear the sins of the world. To be in the grave and to rise from the dead. To be seen by his disciples and to commission them out. To call the world. To go to the ends of the world, even Princeton. To call people to believe in the power of the sacrifice of Jesus. In Jesus Christ as the substitute for your sins. In Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, in the blood of Jesus covering over all the wrong that you have done against God and against man. And in response to that, we're being transformed, being given new life in such an extreme way that we would call it to be born again. That you would be a new man and a new woman. That you would live a new life. That you would, in light of who Christ is and what he has done for you, 
no longer has that shame, no longer has that struggle, no longer has that bitterness or that selfishness, that anger, but rather you would overflow with love and grace and mercy through all circumstances, good and bad. Right? This is the power of the gospel and Acts. And what it asks of us, on one hand, is so small. It's so much smaller than like what Princeton asks of you, right? I mean, Princeton, what's Princeton asking? Ceaseless labor for four years. You know, it's like problem set after problem set paper. You know, it's like they ask you to write 15 page papers and then they hit you with 30 page and then they hit you with 100 page. And then you go to grad school, you gotta write a book and get it published. You know, it's like we're on this wheel, right? Of striving, striving and achievement. And that's, uh, it's good to strive and work if for the right reasons. But it's like what Jesus offers us in the gospel. What is it good news? How does it change everything? It's merely to believe. It's merely to believe. This is so simple, yet so so thorough, so profound. Right? What Jesus is asking you of isn't a whole bunch of labor. It's not to grow dramatically smarter. It's not to it's not to uh, build a, a business empire or start an NGO that changes the world. What Jesus asks of you is so simple, yet so much. He asks of you humility. The humility to recognize, yeah, there is something wrong. Yeah, something wrong with the world for sure. But also something wrong in my heart. And that something wrong is all the encouragement, good as that is, therapy, useful as that is, changes in circumstances, powerful as they are, that is not the answer. The answer is for me to humble myself before God, God who made me, made me to worship him. And to say, yes, yes, I have sinned. It's okay. It's okay to admit it. It's okay to recognize. It enables you to address the reality of your life and the reality of this world. You don't have to hide. You don't have to pretend that the world is a great place or that you've done no wrong. That's humility of us. It asks confession and repentance, turning away. You open your heart in humility. You confess yes, Lord. I was made to worship you. I was made to live as you have commanded. And I have not done that. But not just to confess and repent. It asks of us, this is actually in some ways the hardest broken thing. It asks us to receive, to accept forgiveness. Right? Like what's difficult? Like which is harder for you to give, to, to, to help others, or to accept help? Right? I mean, I, I love helping other people, right? Because it's like you're supposed to do it. And people like you for it. That comes easier. But like accepting help? Never mind like what Jesus is saying here, like you couldn't save yourself, but I can save you. You couldn't save yourself, but I have saved you. To be able to receive that. Yes, I have been forgiven. Yes, I'm a child of God. I don't need to strive. I don't need to compete. I don't need to constantly live in a cycle of shame because I've been forgiven. I am a new creation. I have been born again. Right? Can you receive grace? Can you receive it? God has forgiven you. Can you humble yourself? But can you receive it that God has forgiven you? And then to rejoice. Friends, the gospel changes everything. The gospel what makes life amazing. I don't mean amazing like 
how you think what an amazing life will be when you're 13. I mean, you kind of wish the gospel made it amazing like that. It's so much more amazing than having like your every heart's desire. What it gives you is a new heart with better desires and fulfilled those. A new heart with better desires or wild desires and fulfills those. Desires that aren't limited by age or decay or trouble or difficulty or all the weight of the world and what's going on in it or your family or your relationships. None of that hard-pressed though you may be, you will not be overcome. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior? I don't know where you are tonight. I would ask you, if you're not a believer, draw close to him. God sent his only son. This action, this is the Christian good news. All the sin of the world born by Jesus on the cross so that you could be forgiven. That's so powerful. So beautiful. Do you believe? If you're a believer, where are you? What's hard for you in that process? Is it hard for you to humble yourself and confess your sin? Are there sins you're holding on to? Is it hard for you just to receive that grace? Are you constantly trying to earn God's favor? Is it hard for you? Are you just in circumstances right now in life where it's like the joy of salvation just seems distant? Wherever you are, draw close to Jesus. Draw close to him. Confess him as Lord. Meditate on this reality. Right? In his death on the cross, we can be born again. Right? You may be those dry bones. We are all have been those dry bones. But can those bones live? That was the question Ezekiel would have asked. Can they live? Yes. Yes, they can. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray you would bless this word to us. And it's so difficult, Heavenly Father. Indeed, at Princeton, there's so much good news, so much awesome stuff happens all the time, every day. It's hard, it's hard Heavenly Father, to recognize the need for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's hard to even talk about things like we owe God or we're wrong. That just seems bad and unloving. But Heavenly Father, we believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. Yes, we are sinners, but we, there is salvation found in the cross and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Beautiful salvation. I pray, I pray for all of us here that we would be able to humble ourselves before that reality to respond in confession and repentance, to receive your forgiveness, and to live a new life in light of who you are, in light of your great love for us, that you would send your only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We pray this in his name. Amen.